Hi guys, welcome back to the podcast, or if you're tuning in for the first time, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm Parissa. I'm Kaylin. And so today we're just going to be talking about um, the 40-year anniversary of the Islamic Republic's establishment in Iran. And the reason we're talking about this is because I think it was not last Monday, but the Monday Mm -hmm. before that, it was the actual um, 40-year anniversary And we felt that because we were covering a topic last week um, on the podcast that was important, we didn't want to miss out on that. Um, We decided to kind of push this topic over to today for today's podcast, even though um, the anniversary is technically already passed. So before we get into that, I just kind of want to run through some quick housekeeping. Um, If you went ahead and submitted any suggestions or comments on our OML podcast Google form page. Thank you so much. Just want to let you know that we are reading your suggestions and getting around to them. Um, Just be patient because we have a lot of topics (laughs) that we want to talk about. And if you haven't put anything in and you have suggestions for us, please do. Yeah. Um, If you don't know or if you haven't had access to the Google form yet, just go ahead, choose an email, oml at scu.edu, and then we can send it out as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, definitely please, please, please put stuff in there so we can make sure we're always improving our podcast. Yeah, y'all. For sure. And also, um, just want to touch on the fact that usually I think what we're kind of going for is to have like a recap of the weeks, the previous week's difficult dialogue for our for our podcast. And because um, last Thursday we had a roots showing and a mini difficult dialogue, there's not a lot to really recap on. So we're just going to go ahead and skip that. Um, but usually, I think moving mm-hmm. forward in the future, if there is something that we talked about um, during the Difficult Dialogue that we definitely want to bring up just to kind of give people who weren't able to go to Difficult Dialogues a chance to, you know, like learn from the different conversations that we had. Um, And also, I want to say that we have a a podcast episode that's coming up pretty quickly after this one. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Kaylin, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so actually on the day we're recording this next podcast episode um, on February 21st. That is actually the anniversary of the assassination of Malcolm X. Mm -hmm. So in honor of that and that important date in history, we're going to actually have a guest speaker on our next podcast. Mm -hmm. We're going to be inviting Dr. Anthony Hazard from the Department of Ethnic Studies to come talk about that um, as well and kind of the legacy of Malcolm X and maybe why his legacy is kind of misinterpreted by Mm -hmm. a lot of people. so definitely be keep an eye out for that. It's going to come out next week, but the day we're recording it will be the anniversary of the assassination mm-hmm. of Malcolm X. Yeah. So just to kind of get back to today's topic. So I mentioned that we're talking about um, kind of the establishment and the history of the Islamic Republic in Iran, what led to that happening, what led to the revolution, what led to the, the war with Iran and Iraq, and kind of analyzing the social, political economic um, impacts that a lot of the Iranian people are still experiencing today. And if this is your first time tuning in um, and you don't know anything about me, I'm Parissa, this is Parissa speaking, um, a large portion of my family actually still lives in Iran. And both my parents identify as Iranian and, you know, even though I more broadly identify as Middle Eastern North African, I specifically in, in particular identify with being Iranian. Um, And so because of that personal connection on my end, 
Um, I just kind of want to give like a little disclaimer that you should probably keep in mind that there might be familial bias just because a lot of the events we're going to be talking about um, my family has experienced and a lot of times has suffered as the result of. Um, and even though, you know, we always want to emphasize that first person accounts are valid and legitimate, they're um, sometimes first person accounts might also be shaped by conscious or unconscious bias. So, okay, moving forward, we're going to kind of break down the pre-Islamic Republic. So what was going on in Iran before um, the Islamic Republic was established? So basically, Iran was a mini America in the sense that it paralleled popular culture, trends, etc. and idealized Western modernization. And there was a there was a good relationship between Iran and the US at this time. Um, and a lot of we'll get into that a little bit later. But yeah, so just keep that in mind that at this point, you know, the East and West weren't at each other's throats. This was very much kind of like a imitation is flattery kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And if you, I think we're going to try to put up pictures on our OML homepage um, under our little tab that we have for today's podcast episode of pictures um, that we might specifically be talking about, but don't quote me on that. Um, we'll try for sure because I feel like a lot of times seeing these pictures is really important. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we're just kind of getting this podcast off the ground. So it's a lot of like test. Yes, we're yeah. definitely working things out. But for sure. On a side note, you can find the other podcast episodes on our OML website now. They're uploaded. If you go to su.edu slash OML and then mm -hmm. you click on the contemplate tab, you'll see a little page for what on the street. So if you want to and you have some time, catch up on those episodes too. They're a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So, yeah. So um, we're looking at a picture right now. Kaylin and I are looking at a picture of Princess Fatima Pahlavi. And just keep in mind that because I speak Farsi, I'm going to be pronouncing these names as accurately as they would be pronounced if we were actually in Iran. Um, so, yeah, if it sounds kind of like... Yeah, okay, sorry. That was over explaining. <laughs> um, but just like looking at this picture... Is there anything that kind of like stands out to you about her? I think it's it's interesting to see this picture because it looks like very in line with what you see in terms of like Western beauty standards. Mm -hmm. At the time, um, of course. At the time, yeah. yeah. I mean, and you're looking at like we're establishing that pre-Islamic Republic. Iran mm -hmm. was in a sense like a mini America mm -hmm. um, and really like was trying to push towards like Westernization and, uh, you know, all of those ideals and yeah complicated history with that but I think it's kind of this just image of her right here I think that's very like comes through a lot at least in my eyes um she looks like a Hollywood star yeah that's exactly no, she has what like, she looks like she has like the the Hollywood hairstyle too yes. and like the pose and like the lighting mm -hmm. and everything if I didn't know who this was I would think that this was just another picture of like a Hollywood actress from like mm -hmm. the 50s yeah. right so I think just kind of like looking at it really really helps you pick up on the fact that this really was like a mini america at least that's what a lot of the social trends mm -hmm. um kind of represented and so you know we mentioned that she was the daughter of the shah and the monarchy was was decently well liked kaylin will get a little bit into mm -hmm. that um later and kind of break down why people um might have had some contempt for the shah but we also want to emphasize that even though the monarchy was decently well-liked, um, 
keep in mind that the Iranian people are looking back at this monarchy kind of with like, um, like you don't know what you have until it's gone mm -hmm. kind of. And so it's easy to romanticize something that, you know, like you're looking back on fondly and wishing you could return to as a lot of the, Amer as a lot of the Iranian people, um, are doing now. But on top of that, we also want to mention that even though the monarchy was decently well liked, it wasn't as well liked as Mossadegh's government, who Mossadegh was the old prime minister prior to um, Reza Shah Pahlavi becoming the king of Iran. And basically, Mossadegh's government was overthrown um, with the help of a, the US by a coup. And um, this king, Reza Shah Pahlavi, who was put in his place, was kind of seen as like an American pawn that, mm -hmm. you know, the Americans came in, kicked out the, the person in charge of the government that they couldn't control, and then put one of their own guys um, in the seat of power so that they could kind of manipulate, you know, the Middle East or at least have some influence mm -hmm. there, even if they weren't themselves there. Um, and just kind of in general, most Iranians felt indifferent about their king. At least that's kind of like the narrative that I've gotten from mm -hmm. like my grandmothers when I talk to them or older relatives. Um, and a lot of them actually say that the revolution is often credited to being the result of the grass is greener somewhere else mentality. So mm -hmm. it's like, yeah, this is fine, but like we could have better, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, obviously, given the fact that a lot of, there's a lot of different hierarchical, high, hierarchical, Jesus Christ, how do you say that word? <laughs> it's a hard word. It's an ugly word. Let's just, yeah, I mean, I think we can all establish Exactly, that. yeah. There's like a ladder. There's like a food <laughs> chain, basically. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, the, the, the people who are in social classes um, that are maybe lower on that social structure, they definitely felt, you know, like more anger and, um, they were they were the people who were more likely to mm -hmm. like feed into a revolution, mm -hmm. you know, um, and just like a personal connection. My parents were um, too young to like actually remember what was going on, but my dad remembers being in like elementary school mm -hmm. and kind of like you know how kids kind of know what's going on around them, but they can't make sense of it. Mm -hmm. It was kind of like that. Um, and my mom mentioned that because I was talking to my parents a couple days ago about this, just so I had like you know, more recent perspective mm -hmm. to see if they wanted to add anything um, to the podcast. But my mom remembers that, like, prior to the Islamic Republic being established, there was no mandatory headscarf. And so you would, like, walk down the street and see older women who, like... Because I, I think before Reza Shah Pahlavi and, you know, like, the monarchy was established, I think there was a king or a monarchy, somebody in the line mm -hmm. who had made headscarves mandatory. Mm -hmm. um, so you had older women, and at this point, mm -hmm. prior to the revolution, it was kind of like, you do whatever the hell you want. And so you would like walk down the street and see older women wearing like headscarves mm -hmm. and um, younger women not wearing them. And it was very much like a your choice kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And so she remembers that because after, you know, the, the revolution happened, um, and the Republic was established, spoiler alert, that wasn't like a choice anymore, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and so Kaylin's going to kind of break down a little bit more about the king here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so you're going to have to help me with the pronunciation, Mohammed Reza Shah. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so he, uh, I think the biggest thing that really fed into the ensuing like Islamic rev uh, revolution that I was 
doing in terms of my research, background research before this was he started in around like the early 60s, the what's known as the White Revolution, um, which really, when you boil it down, was a push for westernization and like an urbanization, essentially an industrialization mm-hmm. of the country. Um, and this, you know, led to disruption in a lot of different spaces. Um, but I think one of the biggest things was that it really disrupted rural economies. And mm-hmm. then you see the economy of um, Iran starting to rely a little, like, more heavily on oil um, and things like that. Um, and because of this, there was actually a stagnation in the buying power and standard of living in Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, you had high rates of inflation because of the fluctuation fluctuations, mm-hmm. oh my god, that's an ugly word too, yeah. <laughs> um, in oil pr- uh, prices, um, you had suddenly the idea that supp- the supply couldn't keep up with the demand mm-hmm. of like Western countries that were buying oil from Iran as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you see this and you have, there are a lot of parallels when we're talking about, um, you know, this being a mini America, uh, mm-hmm. this disruption of rural economies, you know, kind of the gutting of those and what that means for the folks who were relying on that sort of uh, economy and infrastructure mm-hmm. um, for their living kind of really plays into this idea that there was a stagnation in buying power and standard of living mm-hmm. um, because of this. Um, additionally, there's a lot of opposition from like the clergy and the cleric class mm-hmm. um, against the secularization of a lot of different um, aspects of, you know, Iranian society as well that kind of comes with like this idea of westernization Mm -hmm. people see like the western world as being very secular separation of church and state which is not necessarily true yeah we say in god we trust here in the u.s we are not it's all over our money i remember like when even when i was in elementary school maybe it's because i didn't go to elementary school here i went to elementary school in like indiana and virginia but even then like you had to stand for the pledge of allegiance every morning Mm -hmm. and that entire like paragraph is so like heavily riddled with religious Mm -hmm. language you know yeah so yes but there was a lot of pushback against the secularization um and in addition to this you know you had people coming in with like social and political protest as well Mm um as i mean just like if you look at the fact that buying power and standard living was stagnated and like really going down at this Mm -hmm. point for a lot of people there was going to be pushback um, but that pushback was actually met with censorship, surveillance, or harassment, um, as well as illegal detention and torture mm-hmm. was very common um, during this white revolution. And is this is really seen as kind of a precursor to um, and a really big cause of what was ensuing with the Islamic revolution mm-hmm. um, in the coming years. Yeah. And like we briefly mentioned before, um, it was not really a secret that the king and the monarchy were American pawns. Um, and there's a quote from an article I was reading. If you also are interested in references and anything like that, that will also be up on our OML, um, page that Kaylin briefly mentioned before. But, um, this is the quote reasons advanced for the revolution and it's populist nationalist and later Shia Islamic character include a conservative backlash against the westernizing and secularizing efforts of the western backshaw a rise in expectations created by the 19 
1973 oil revenue windfall and an overly ambitious economic program, anger over a short, sharp economic contraction in 1977 and 78 and other shortcomings of the previous regime. So it was just a lot of things that kind of came together um, as a lot of, you know, random different factors that contribute to revolutions do. Yes. And I would like to insert too, um, when we're looking at like this time period as well, like mm-hmm. post-World War II and like 50s, 60s, um, this is also the height of the Cold War. So you're, yeah. it's not surprising to see um, a U.S.-backed monarchy mm-hmm. in Iran at this point. Um, the U.S., you know, they're burgeoning rivals with like the Soviet Union. So you see at this point, especially in regards to like U.S. foreign policy, a lot of insertion in the internal politics of various new countries that Mm -hmm. have been popping up so you see this in the middle east you see this in asia you see this in africa as well um and so i think that's also that's kind of playing in the background of all this as well Mm -hmm. um that we are kind of at that point in the cold war where you see like these two like i guess superpowers i guess you could say Mm -hmm. between the soviet union and the u.s kind of inserting themselves in various spaces to influence those internal politics and you see on like the u.s side at least they're like oh well we're trying to fight against the threat of communism yeah and like russia was in afghanistan right so that's a very very like direct example of like literally you have the u.s in one middle eastern country Mm -hmm. kind of like pulling the strings behind the scenes and then you have Russia or the Soviet Union in Afghanistan, like two steps away, (laughs) doing the same thing, Mm -hmm. right? So it's just, it's very much like a battle taking place on soil that's not either of theirs. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, And then just kind of like breaking down a timeline uh, of like how things started to really unfold. So um, in 1963... January of 1963, the Shah launches the White Revolution Program of Land Reform and Social and Economic Modernization. During the late 1960s, he became increasingly dependent on the Savak secret police in controlling opposition movements. And so, kind of like explaining what the Savak is. So, by definition, I'm going to go ahead and say like the Farsi translation and then break it down in English. So, SAVAK stands for Sazemane Etelot Va Amniote Keshavar, translating to the Organization of National Intelligence and Security of the Nation. And this was like the name that the Shah's secret police um, went by. And so it was secret police, domestic security, and intelligence services for the Pahlavi dynasty. And so in 1978, September, the Shah's policies alienate the clergy and his authoritarian rule leads to riots, strikes, and mass demonstrations. Martial law is imposed. And so another definition for you. Um, martial law is military government involving the suspension of ordinary law. In 1979, January, as the political situation deteriorates, the Shah and his family are forced into exile. And I think they actually first go into exile in Egypt. Yes, I believe that's yeah where they went as well. I- in my research right now yes yes and then so in 1979 february the islamic clerical opposition leader ayatollah rohala khamenei returns from 14 years of exile in iraq and france and so kaylin do you want to talk a little bit about um khamenei khomeini sorry Mm -hmm. there's there's another person who comes later like in this whole timeline Mm -hmm. and his name is khomeini 
Mm-hmm. And this one's name is Khomeini. And I'm just like, <laughs> they are both basically the exact same person. So yeah, if you want to talk a little bit about Khomeini. Yes. yes. So he was a, based on my research, he was a Shiite cleric. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's actually the son also of a prominent Islamic scholar as well. So he came from a family of like scholars and was very well educated and was very well versed in a lot of different things. But he was actually one of the first people to openly oppose and condemn the Shah's like programs and reforms mm-hmm. coming through with the right white revolution. Um, and so because of this, he was actually arrested in 1963. Mm-hmm. Um, and then going back to the idea that people who were protesting these um, reforms and these programs were, you know, silenced and torture, illegal detention, um, yeah. and things like that. So he was arrested and he was actually exiled from the mm-hmm. country in the following year in November 1964. Mm-hmm. Um, and with this, he was calling for an overthrow of the Shah and the establishment of an Islamic state. So that was um, that was that speech that he had in which he called for an overthrow and mm-hmm. then establishment of an Islamic state was really the one that kind of preceded his arrest and then eventual exile. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he decided to settle in okay. Adajaf in... Um, Iraq, which is a Shiite holy city, um, but it was still pretty close to Iran. And when he was living there, he actually recorded himself and then sent um, his home recordings of his sermons uh, to his like student followers mm-hmm. in um, Iran. So I mean, you see this in the U.S. as well, like yeah. student organizing and like students behind like the forefront of like these movements. So mm-hmm. again, like those parallels too are very yeah. um, important to note. And so he sent these recordings and then that helped like inspire and like move his like followers as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he actually uh, called for Shiite leaders to govern Iran, which is interesting because that was breaking with the precedence with um, the Shiite tradition that discouraged clerical participation in government. Mm-hmm. But um, again, that's, you know, he was really pushing back against the programs of westernization and urbanization and you know secularization as well um and so he you know was exiled and then he actually came back in 1979 in february um after spending 14 years mm-hmm. um exiled essentially from yeah his own country yeah yeah i i think it's like it's really interesting to think about because you know like i don't think it's a secret that most like modern Iranian people are, you know, like they look back at the revolution um, and the establishment of the Islamic Republic with like hatred Mm -hmm. um, because it's like suppressed so many different groups um, Mm -hmm. and really infringed on what they thought the new government should be Mm -hmm. um, and didn't live up to that. But like, I totally understand, you know, like given the historical context why the Iranian people even wanted a revolution because it's it's very problematic to have a more powerful country kind of like dabbling in your politics mm-hmm. and controlling things um when they shouldn't be you mm-hmm. know like it, it makes sense that these people wanted a, a government that wasn't you know going to be used as a pawn mm-hmm. to like help advance America's um own like kind of agenda right and I mean like look at the history and just look at what you know like these first world countries have done mm-hmm. to other countries when they've interfered in their politics or their like society mm-hmm. uh, I mean like one of the major reasons why Africa is like 
it has, I think, like a really large number of third third world countries within the continent mm-hmm. because of like all of that imperialistic and mm-hmm. colonial involvement. Yeah. And it completely destabilizes a region. Mm-hmm. So, like, I understand why they felt like a revolution was needed. Mm-hmm. It's just that, you know, like, in the process of the revolution happening, it, like, kind of fell into the wrong hands. Mm-hmm. And then, like, we have the government that we have now mm-hmm. because of that. And so in 1979, in April, the Islamic Republic of Iran is, pl- is proclaimed following a referendum. And so the definition of referendum um, is a general vote by the electorate on a single political question which has been referred to them for a direct decision. And in 1979, in November, Islamic militants take 52 Americans hostage inside the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. They demand the extradition of the Shah in the U.S. at the time for medical treatment to face trial in Iran. And so this is the the Iran hostage crisis, right, Mm -hmm. where, you know, like... I basically don't know anything about the the hostage situation besides the sentence I just said, but mm-hmm. the way that it's been portrayed in like Western media, I definitely think that this particular um, situation really contributed to like um, Islamophobia mm-hmm. and just different like situations of people living in the West you know, deciding that the Middle East was, like, bad, or the mm-hmm. enemy, right? Mm-hmm. And then in January of 1980, Abul Hassan Bani Sadr is elected as the first president of the Islamic Republic. His government begins work on a major nationalization program. And then in 1980, in July, the exiled Shah dies of cancer in Egypt. And so, you know, like, the king doesn't come back, the, spoiler alert again like (laughs) we don't have a monarchy in place anymore a monarchy has not been in place in 40 years you Mm -hmm. know and so um just kind of like speaking less formally about what happened going forward at this point so what you had was once the um once the religious leaders who were decided you know that these were the people who were going to be in power now once they kind of got their hands on that power and they had the authority to do so, they started kind of basically Xing out everything that the Shah had done. Mm-hmm. So everything the Shah had done to make Iran more secular and more westernized and kind of like, you know, fit that ideal, they were completely rolling everything back. Um, like now when you go to Iran, like hijab is mandatory. Mm-hmm. Not only do you have to wear a hijab, but you also have to wear like what we call a manteau, which is kind of like a tunic, where it's like Mm -hmm. a longer kind of like shirt or sweater or coat that you have to wear over, you know, like your already long pants and Mm -hmm. like your headscarf that is kind of like used to prevent people from seeing like, you know, the natural shape of like Mm -hmm. your butt or like Mm -hmm. your boobs or whatever, right? And so it's like all of these um, clothing adherences Mm -hmm. that people start need to like, they need to start um, obeying. And I want to highlight that this was not something that was just directed at women, although, you know, it definitely imposed a lot more on women's um, kind of individuality than men. But men also, like, men had to dress appropriately too. I think it was something like, don't quote me on this because I could be wrong, but I think it was something like men also had to wear, like, long pants and long sleeves. Like, they had to dress very Mm -hmm. modestly. 
and it was kind of seen as like women are covering up um, so that men aren't tempted, like good men aren't driven bad Mm -hmm. by seeing these women not being, you know, like quote unquote virtuous, Mm -hmm. but also men were expected to kind of, you know, like meet a certain level of basic dress and like your haircut and you couldn't Mm -hmm. have like you know, any, like, crazy mohawks or anything like that. So it was just Mm -hmm. a lot of, like, kind of standardizing what, you know, your average Iranian woman should look like and what Mm -hmm. your average Iranian man should look like. Mm -hmm. And then so they started, you know, like, playing. So there's speakers in Iran. Mm -hmm. um, And usually they'll have, like, the call to prayer. Mm -hmm. And so that'll play in the morning. And then, like, I think it plays five times a day because that's how Mm -hmm. often Muslims are like expected to pray five times a day at like specific times of the day and so it's almost kind of like when you're out and about or in the morning like that's the first thing that wakes you up Mm -hmm. right so it's a very constant reminder of like this is literally your alarm clock Mm -hmm. like you can you can mark the time of day it is by those like projections Mm -hmm. of you know like the call to prayer um yeah, and so all of that happened, and basically, it was just one thing after another. And not only that, but, you know, like, after the revolution had kind of been launched and happened, mm-hmm. and you had this new, like, government in power, um, there was also a war between Iraq and Iran. And I don't know much about the war, um, except from what my parents have told me, but... So this this section that we're going to be talking about right now is going to be not very fact-based and more kind mm-hmm. of like verbally this is what's been told to me and kind of what I've absorbed through my childhood. So I think it was a seven or eight year war with Iraq and it was Saddam Hussein who was the leader of Iraq at that point mm-hmm. and you know like the religious people mm-hmm. in charge of Iran's government and um, you had very young boys, you know, middle schoolers and high schoolers kind of being, you know, loaded onto these trucks and given very, like, basic, minimal, you know, kind of, like, hurried training to -hmm. go out there and fight in this war. Um, And when they died, because a lot of them did, Mm -hmm. um, you had people kind of being brainwashed with the propaganda that, like, oh, you should be happy that your son died because now he's, like, a martyr, right? Mm -hmm. And, like... Um, it was like a very esteemed thing to have somebody in your family who was like a shahid, which basically means martyr. Um, and like my dad, my parents both were in Iran at this point, And my dad, you know, remembers his friends would literally just be driven off to Jephe, which is what they call like the front lines mm-hmm. of the war, um, by like the truckfuls. And mm-hmm. they would just come back in coffins. Like, mm-hmm. he lo- he lost a lot of his friends. Um, and my mom even talks about, because my mom is the oldest of three boys. Four boys? Hold on, let me count. Three boys, sorry. <laughs> yeah, oldest of three boys. And she, you know, like, there were little boys that mm-hmm. her brothers would play with. And she was only a year older than her uh, second, her first brother. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, just, like, the neighborhood dynamic kind of completely shifted when you had, like, the very real realization that these boys were, you know, like, being carted off to war. And then Mm -hmm. they were, like, a lot of them, their bodies were never even returned because it was just, like, there's so many bones, we don't even know which Mm -hmm. one is your son, right? And so you have, like, a whole generation of women and, like, men kind of, like, still looking for closure on Mm -hmm. their son's deaths, right? 
And so that was going on and that was, you know, like very traumatizing, especially after like a complete upheaval Mm -hmm. of the government. And you also had like missile threats. So like my mom, I hope she doesn't get mad that I'm saying this, but (laughs) um, she still is very, very sensitive to um, like things flying overhead. And Mm -hmm. she's like, I definitely think that she has PTSD and I for sure think that my dad does too, because, you know, like I feel like especially given like the the time period mm-hmm. and the generation that you were brought up in men and women kind of process trauma in different ways mm-hmm. but something that i've noticed between them that is very similar is the fact that both of them will kind of like tense up anytime mm-hmm. like you can hear an airplane or helicopters or just something flying above you and you don't know what it is mm-hmm. um because when you know like my my mom was in like high school mm-hmm. um or even like in her early years of college there would be like missile threats and they would mm-hmm. say like there's a missile coming and they would hear the really loud noise and you know they would run over to like the bomb shelter mm-hmm. and it was like a tiny little room like the size of a closet basically mm-hmm. for you know like a lot of times all the people in an apartment building mm-hmm. and these people would be kind of like huddled in the bomb shelter for however long it took for this threat to you know go away Mm -hmm. and like she would tell me you know like that she would study by candlelight in there with like 50 people packed in there with her um and so it makes sense you know that you Mm -hmm. would develop some kind of sensitivity to Mm -hmm. like that really sudden noise and it's just a lot of things that I find it very interesting and sad to look at um at Iranian people in my parents generation because a lot of them um had kind of they kind of needed to push down the like emotional Mm -hmm. trauma that they experienced during you know like the revolution and the eight years of war after Mm -hmm. and a lot of times they kind of like display that effect that Mm -hmm. it had on them without even like noticing it or realizing Mm -hmm. that like this is why they do what they do Mm -hmm. like my parents both never waste food because Mm -hmm. like food and like eating and making sure you know you got like where your next meal was coming from was never guaranteed. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad in general, you know, like he doesn't like to admit this, but I think he's kind of a paranoid person mm-hmm. because of, you know, like the constant kind of like back and forth mm-hmm. with different, you know, like things happening. And like my dad was, uh, he always mentions this whenever we talk about the revolution and the war and he says that you know like he was basically because being in the army was mandatory like Mm -hmm. for two years after high school you had to be in the military force of iran Mm -hmm. and so this was right around the time that the revolution was happening like he had seen people come back dead or just not Mm -hmm. come back at all and so his dad had taken him to kind of like the station where all the people who are being incorporated into like the military are like being trained um Mm -hmm. and they actually got there late Mm -hmm. and so my dad missed the truck that had like the trained people on it to Mm -hmm. be sent out you know to Mm -hmm. the front lines and my dad always tells me the story and he says like everybody on that truck died Mm -hmm. like there was not a single survivor and so like death was so very real that just being five minutes late like, could mean the difference of a lifetime for you, Mm -hmm. right? Because think about how much somebody can accomplish in, like, 40 years. Mm -hmm. Or, like, you know, 50 years or whatever. Um, And so, yeah, I just, I think it's, like, really important to, you know, like, we want to consider facts, but we also want to think about the actual people who, like, live through this Mm -hmm. and, you know, how many 
like women, like in my grandmother's generation or my older relative's generation kind of like, because I've noticed a lot of times women, you Mm -hmm. know, even though men are doing the physical fighting, women are the ones to kind of like pull everything together at home and, Mm -hmm. you know, take care of the children and bear like the emotional brunt of things. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, so I don't know. Yeah, I think it's, but it's interesting, it's important too because I think people when you get, so caught up with like facts and like dates Mm. and like history and things like that you don't realize that there's a huge human impact that is still felt today like generations down the line i mean we last week we talked about the legacy of slavery and how Mm. that still impacts the community today and like you have now like specifically with this like 40 the 40 year anniversary Mm -hmm. and it's has you have people who are still alive that can remember like physically and like Mm -hmm. have those like physical reactions to what had happened and you have that real human impact so I think it's important to talk about that because it's not like you can find facts in like a book or the internet or something but you it's hard to understand like the real human impact of that Mm -hmm. if you're just reading something on the screen and not hearing about like someone's actual story Mm -hmm. because they're again they're people tied to this and I think it's really important that we talk about it because Mm -hmm. it's not something that people talk about yeah a especially lot. because this is the west and this is like very eastern history you know um mm-hmm. yeah but i i definitely think that it's something that is very much like it's almost the impact of it is almost like it happened very recently rather mm-hmm. than this happened 40 years ago right um and like the war ended in a ceasefire basically mm-hmm. both sides were like we've been doing this for eight years Mm -hmm. we've lost so many people and we are not really any closer to getting what we wanted done because like honestly both sides were being led by complete like dictators Mm -hmm. and people who like didn't really care honestly um and they were just imagine like two people like donald trump Mm -hmm. fighting like that's that's Mm -hmm. exactly what it was you know um and i'm trying to look at stats of how many people were killed oh okay so it says um you know there's like a hundred thousand plus civilians killed on both sides um and you know like that's just civilians Mm -hmm. so imagine all those people and the civilian deaths a lot of times were from you know like iraq invading the border towns Mm -hmm. um or missiles dropping you know on an apartment building and taking out everybody Mm -hmm. that lived there And so it was a lot of, like, you don't know if you're going to wake up tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So imagine being a child in that environment and just not really understanding the full scope of things, but also, Mm -hmm. like, being able to pick up on that very real Mm -hmm. emotional fear, Mm -hmm. you know? Okay, so I think, like, moving forward and in terms of, like, the impact, is there anything else that you wanted Mm -hmm. to, like, touch on? No, I think it's it's also really important, too, because I wanted to point out, too, when you said, when you talked about the... Um, hostage situation mm-hmm. in 79 mm-hmm. um, and that kind of is really one of the things that is like still seen as like a reason why there's so much Islamophobia in the yeah. West especially by the way the media covered it I think that is important to point out because I think a lot of people have this, this false idea that like Islamophobia was a huge issue only mm-hmm. after 9-11 yes but it's been going on for so long yeah it's You know, multiple generations have had to deal with, like, the adverse effects of Islamophobia, especially within the Muslim community. Mm -hmm. I think that's important to shout out, too, because it's, like, 
the stuff that we're talking about now, and I think mm-hmm. it's there's more of like a light put onto it, especially with like Donald Trump and his Muslim ban. Mm-hmm. That idea of like Islamophobia isn't just within this century. It's has its root back roots back to this and mm-hmm. possibly even back even more. I don't I'm not necessarily yeah. most well versed on this history, mm-hmm. so I don't want to say anything that could be too wrong, but mm-hmm. um I think that's important to know because I think people gloss over that fact and people are like yeah. very distinctive like, oh that was that generation and like this is this generation but no there's a again going back to like this idea of a legacy. There's these threads that connect the past to the present that people assume are like cut off but they're like mm-hmm. still connected you know yeah but I, I definitely think that like you know it's it, we know definitively that 9-11 was not when islamophobia kind of like became a thing it mm-hmm. was already a thing but i definitely think one of the things that really like sparked the fire that like really launched islamophobia was the hostage crisis for sure because if you think about it before that like the u.s was controlling iran Mm -hmm. right and so it was kind of like oh look they're so cute and small like they just want to be like us right and then it was only after like the king was pushed out of the country and they were like oh my god like they're really serious about this and Mm -hmm. and then they took the the american hostages like that's very much symbolic of like don't interfere in Mm -hmm. our politics anymore the way you can correct this and save the 52, I think it was 52 lives, mm-hmm. is if you give us back the one person we have beef with. So it's mm-hmm. almost kind of like now they're pulling the strings mm-hmm. and they're controlling things, mm-hmm. right? Um, but yeah, so I think that's, is that like all you wanted to touch mm-hmm. on? Yeah, I, I wanted to make sure that people understood that yes. like Islamophobia is not a post 9 sure. thing. It's been around for a while. Yeah. Yeah, and so just kind of like fast forwarding to contemporary times, right now you have Iran, which, you know, has definitely been financially weakened, has been socially completely like eroded and reconstructed in the image that these religious, you know, like extremists really um, Mm -hmm. want to see it become. And, you know, I think it is understandable that the Iranian people 40 years ago did not want a government that would bow to America. Um, Mm -hmm. But I really think now, like, you have two very inflammatory countries kind of, like, at each other's necks all the time. Mm -hmm. And there's almost, like, this illusion of a democracy where you have presidential elections. And, like, if you look at kind of the general consensus of people, you know, it's very clear that they want one opponent over another. But Mm -hmm when the, like, least favored opponent wins and, you know, he's a pawn for the religious, like, republic, then, like, people have been protesting a lot. People have been, you know, just kind of, like, constantly up in arms because the revolution did not go the way that it was originally intended to. Mm -hmm. And so now you have, you know, like, people our age kind of pushing for another revolution, um to kind of override the one that's already happened. And I took a class, um, I think it was, God, like last spring with uh, Dr. Hegland from the anthropology department. And she's awesome. I love her. She is, you know, a white woman, but she spent the last like 50 years doing work specifically in Iran. And Mm -hmm. she speaks Farsi Mm -hmm. well. (laughs) Like it's very crazy. She's just so interesting and so educated and, 
And for somebody who I think she mentioned, like she was one of the very few anthropologists and scientists who were like from outside of Iran that were like specifically permitted to stay after the revolution. Mm -hmm. And like she just, the way she was recalling that time period was just like a time period of depression. She said like she was depressed for years after it happened. Mm -hmm. So imagine, you know, like somebody who is an outsider who doesn't even necessarily have like a sense of nationalism for the country. Um, imagine that person being like very depressed and emotionally affected by it. Right. And, and I took a class with her and, um, we talked a lot about Iran and kind of how there's been like a push with this new generation Mm -hmm. that is our age of like utilizing social media and protesting Mm -hmm. and kind of like really pushing boundaries for like how low they can have their headscarves without Mm -hmm. being like arrested or like, in what situations can they hang out? Because in general, like, if you go to a mosque, if you go to, like, you know, a swimming pool, men and women mm-hmm. are separated. There's mm-hmm. very separate facilities for each, mm-hmm. you know, sex. Um, and because of that, um, there's been a lot of, you know, just kind of, like, boundary pushing and seeing how far people can go without getting, you know, like, arrested. And like I'm saying, you know, the fact that they're getting arrested, it's a very serious game. This is mm-hmm. not, there's been people who have been killed for much less, mm-hmm. you know, like, and, and something that the Republic and the regime just does is, you know, they'll arrest you for something because they perceive that you are a threat to the establishment mm-hmm. and they will basically, you know, keep you in prison, won't tell your family anything about you, you know, regardless of how often or how frequently they ask or whatever the case is. Um, and you know what, they'll just like, a lot of times they'll kill you and they won't even tell your family Mm -hmm. and they'll tell you like, oh no, she's still in prison. Like she's fine. You know, um, you just can't see her and your family would never know that you actually were, you know, assassinated, Mm -hmm. you know, three years prior, whatever Mm -hmm. the case is. Right. And the, the book, a book that we specifically read that I would really recommend to anybody who's kind of interested in like what's going on, um, with the youth in Iran is Passionate Uprisings by Pardis Mahdavi. And she talks a lot about, because she is an Iranian woman and she, mm-hmm. um, she's Iranian-American and so she'll go back and do kind of like social research and, and stuff like that. And she really talks about how how people have gotten so good at learning how to push these boundaries and know mm-hmm. the limits of the regime, but also push them and like continue to protest when they know how dangerous it is. Um, and just kind of like the generation that, was the generation that caused the revolution. So maybe like 10 years older than my dad, you know, Mm -hmm. um, they're very much scorned in Mm -hmm. the sense where it was like, you were either doing something or not doing something Mm -hmm. to contribute to this mess that we're all in right now. Mm -hmm. And so because of the mess that y'all created, we're the ones who have to fix it. Mm -hmm. Right. And just like thinking about how many young lives have been lost because Mm -hmm. of, you know, like, was this revolution really a good thing? Like, was it always meant to be like this, like for a new regime? Or did it kind of like fall into the wrong hands, you know? Um, and so there, there definitely is a lot of like, you know, social and political unrest just within Iran itself. And, you know, like a lot of different social media services are banned in mm-hmm. Iran. Um, and so communication and kind of like putting the word out there about like, oh, come protest here at this location, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, And it's very much one of those things where it's like you don't want to be out on the streets if a protest is happening in the area where it is happening because, um, you know, like a lot of times soldiers or people who are part of like the regimes, you know, 
military will just fire into the crowd mm-hmm. and be like, well, you shouldn't have been here if you didn't want to get killed, right? Mm-hmm. And there was actually a woman who was killed, I think it was in like 2010. Her name was Neda Okasotan, and she was actually just leaving from a music lesson, mm-hmm. and she was shot and killed on the street, and there's, there's a video of it. Mm-hmm. Like, she just bleeds out right on the street. And it, it's, she became kind of like a, a martyr for the cause for another revolution Mm -hmm. like this regime has got to go because this woman is you know like by the book a martyr you know what i'm saying Mm -hmm. like she might like maybe she wasn't fighting for a cause that she like was consciously fighting for Mm -hmm. but the fact that she was just killed for like being in the wrong place at the wrong time like Mm -hmm. there's not a good regime that is going to allow that to happen Mm -hmm. right and so she's also been, you know, like somebody that's like a lot of times revolutionaries in Iran or people who are like trying to incite change. Um, they'll have like pictures of her face um, mm-hmm. or her name. And what I find is really interesting is the fact that a lot of these like new age martyrs are women. Mm-hmm. And so um, there's Neda. And then there's also another woman named um, Rehane Jah- Jabori. I think so. Yeah. And so she basically was a woman who um, killed the man that I think either raped her or Mm -hmm. was attempting to rape her, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, like, I didn't do specific research on this because this is something that's just, like, coming into my mind right now. But, you know, like, as best as I remember, what happened was, you know, she, she fatally stabbed the man who was either raping her or attempting to rape her. And a lot of times in Iran, I guess, this, this... the justice system, the way it works is like, if the family of the victim, you know, like kind of gives you like a pass to not be executed for your crime, then that's fine. Like you're good mm-hmm. to go. Um, and from what I remember, because, you know, like they, there is a death sentence and mm-hmm. they execute it not like with as much, you know, you know, let's make all, make sure everything is lined up and everything's like all the all the T's are, are crossed and the mm-hmm. I's are dotted, you know, before we literally kill somebody because you can't come back from that. Mm-hmm. It happens like every single day. Mm-hmm. And they're often very public because, you know, they want to send a message. Um, and from what I remember, her family did actually say, you know, like we pardon her, like it's fine, you know, because there was a lot of like international out, outcry about why is this woman being punished with something that is not like changeable Mm -hmm. the death sentence because she killed a man who either raped her or was trying to rape her right Mm -hmm. it was just one of those things where it was like this is this is the peak of like toxic masculinity and rape Mm -hmm. culture and like women like being weak if they're victims but also having their honor taken away from them you know Mm -hmm. Um, and so there was a petition and everything, and I, I'm pretty sure, despite the victim's family saying, like, we pardon her because we recognize that this is a very sensitive situation, we don't want to take a life because, you know, somebody in our family died, um, the government still went ahead and executed her. Mm-hmm. And I remember, like, it was a very, very, like, solemn day, um, and I don't know if any of you listeners read poetry but there's a poet um his name is Kava Akbar and he's Iranian and he has a poem in his book uh calling a wolf a wolf 
dedicated to Rehana Jabbari. And I think that's, it's very powerful, you know, for somebody outside of Iran to feel that resonance mm-hmm. so intensely, you know. Um, yeah, so I, I think those are two examples of mm-hmm. kind of martyrs for why there needs to be, at the very least, regime change. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of like, oh, you know, we promise to do X, Y, and Z, but they don't do it. Mm-hmm. And it's constant, like, oh, we promise we'll change this, or we'll, you know, like, we'll kind of meet you halfway on this, and then mm-hmm. they don't, or, like, it's too little too late. Mm-hmm. And people are just getting more and more fed up, plus with the U.S. sanction, like, it's a very um, sensitive place like part of the world to be right now because a lot of people are feeling like the impact of you know not being able to access medication that is life-saving to them Mm -hmm. or not having enough money to like buy a meal for their family Mm -hmm. and it's just a lot of factors contributing at once and I feel like we are honestly on the brink of another like either revolution or social change And part of me is like, yeah, I mean, how else are you going to overthrow a government that is not, like, what's best for the country Mm -hmm. or for the majority of the people? Um, But I'm also very, like, hesitant because Mm -hmm. of how badly it went wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like I don't really know much about, like, the history of revolutions, but I feel like across the board, revolutions are very bittersweet. Like, they're Mm -hmm. not completely amazing, Um. 99% of the time I would say like I feel like the only example of a revolution that went like really well kind of went off without a hitch is the American Revolution Mm -hmm. but aside from that a lot of other revolutions are are not like what they were chalked up to be Mm -hmm. yeah and you can even make the argument that American Revolution isn't what it was supposed to be yeah I mean this country is literally based on the genocide Mm -hmm. of indigenous people and the Americas and then built on like the backs and the bodies of like African slaves too so I think your point of like revolutions being very bittersweet I think there's always that give and take Mm -hmm. and there has we haven't found at least as society at large Mm -hmm. a way to really grapple with that so Mm -hmm. I think that's definitely like interesting food for thought for everyone to think about yeah I don't know it's it's very complicated because it feels like in the situation we're in right now, a lot of things are happening all at once. So it's hard for the Iranian people to know what to do or which direction to head when it's all very overwhelming from a mm-hmm. lot of different angles, especially with like Trump being the president and mm-hmm. kind of like provoking Iran, mm-hmm. who also doesn't have like the best leaders to know how to respond to, you know, mm-hmm. like an inflammatory person kind of like poking the bear, you mm-hmm. know? Um, yeah, so it's a lot, but. I think that's all we wanted to touch on, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So um, another couple references or suggested readings for you if you're interested. I highly recommend you read, Pers- I'm going to say it the Farsi way, um, Persepolis, both the graphic novel and the film um, by Marjan Satrapi. And she talks a lot about, because she was a little bit older than mm-hmm. my parents, um, she talks about kind of like her life prior to the revolution, what happened, you know, during, what mm-hmm. happened after, and kind of like putting together the pieces of an identity as an Iranian woman, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and the book I mentioned, Passionate Uprisings by Paradis Mahdavi, I really liked that book also. Mm-hmm. Um, and I there's another book, God, I think it's called Headscarves and Hymens, Why, why the Middle East... Um, needs another revolution but can you check on that real quick 
think it's it's for sure has headscarves and hymens yes. in it. Yes, headscarves and hymens. Why the Middle East needs a sexual revolution. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and I think that's by Mona. Mona Eltahawi. Yeah. Yes. So she's she's not Iranian, but I I just think like in general it would be nice if the if the Middle East had a sexual revolution and also like very briefly because I don't want to get into this as we're closing off, but you know like being gay, being homosexual is a sin and you will be executed for it. And they mm-hmm. ha- there have been countless young boys, you know, 15, 14, who have literally been murdered, publicly hanged, mm-hmm. because they're gay. And it's one of those things where it's like, don't ask, don't tell, mm-hmm. like don't do anything that could get you caught. Mm-hmm. Um, and while this is happening, like the government is literally paying for sex change operations for people who want to go from being male to female, I think it's exclusively male to female. Like, they're not Mm -hmm. even considering people who might want to be male Mm -hmm. if they were previously biologically female. Um, Because that's what they... They would rather force people into, like, getting a sex change when maybe they really don't need it and they just want to be able to live, you know, as a gay individual um, instead of... Like, they would rather do that Mm-hmm. And go through all of that medical and like financial process than to have just gay people mm-hmm. in the country. You know what I'm saying? So now you have a lot of like people who are our ages and even older who are, you know, like somebody who previously both mentally identified as male and physically identified as male and was a gay man in now a woman's body mm-hmm. because. They felt like that was the appropriate way out of, you know, being kind of like hunted down and worried about that the government was going to find out about you being gay. Mm -hmm. Um, And you have that dysmorphia too. So Mm -hmm. I want to make sure like before we close off that we address that, but it's a, it's like a very complex situation. Mm -hmm. And I definitely think like it's so much to talk about. We want to make sure we do it justice. So in the future, if you guys are interested, we could always talk about Mm -hmm. that specifically, but yeah. Um, yeah, so those are my references, and then for the timeline, I looked a lot at the BBC's uh, Middle East kind of, like, news page, mm-hmm. and just because the 40th anniversary was pretty recently, they had, like, a bunch of different, you know, things that they wrote for that anniversary, so that's it for me. Kaylin, is there anything else you want to say? Um, not specifically on this. I definitely want everyone, encourage everyone to check out all the sources and uh, suggested readings that mm-hmm. Parissa um, just shouted out at the end here. Um, just before we sign off, remember, please, please, please fill out our suggestion form mm-hmm. so we know how to improve our podcast game. Yeah. Um, because we want to give all of y'all the best possible podcast experience. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as follow us on SoundCloud, find us on social media, check out our other podcast episodes right on our OML page on the SCU website. Mm-hmm. There's always something going on here, so yeah. Okay. Cool. That's it for us. Yes. Thanks for tuning in, guys.